Amen. If you have elementary age kids or below, we'd love to have them be a part of our Vine Kids time. They can go right out the side or back door. If you have a middle school age, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, ish in that window of time, uh, we have a great opportunity out there in the front for them. We'd love for them to be a part of that um, as well. Again, one more time, let me just reiterate, if you are here for the first time, um, we're really glad that you're here. It is an honor and privilege for us to have you, uh, and so hopefully what you experience this morning is people being nice to you, and you get to experience the resurrected Christ. That's like the end of our whole game here. Uh, we don't just desire for you to come back or be entertained or any of those things. We just want you to meet Jesus, and we hope people are nice to you along the way. And so um, if it is your first time, we are really, really glad that you are here. Um, you are jumping into the middle of a quite a lengthy journey for us. We have been working through the book of John, the gospel of John, for 64 weeks now. Now, we've taken a few breaks hither and there, but it's been a year and a half that we've kind of been going daily in and out, verse by verse, word by word, through this journey. And, and John's gospel is really different. We've been talking about this every week. It's really different than the other gospels. John has one primary concern and focus, and that's that you would know that Jesus is God. His entire move is to show you that Jesus is actually the incarnation, God in the flesh. He wants you to see Jesus, right? He's not interested in the historicity of Christ or making sure that you knew that he was a person that had certain events. He wants the events that he tells to show that he was in fact God. And so it makes my job as a teacher and a preacher really easy because I just want you to see Jesus. And that's what John's entire gospel is about. And so we have made it all the way to the last few moments, almost hours, if you will, in the life of Christ. We have gone through uh, all of his ministry from the calling of disciples, these incredible miracles, all these things. We've made it to that last night. And we have been here for weeks and weeks and weeks because John focuses about a third or even more than that of his entire gospel to the last seven days in the life of Jesus. And so we've been in this moment and we are in this section of John's gospel. We're actually kind of wrapping it up today and moving into a little bit of a new section next week that's called the Farewell Discourse, where Jesus has this sort of long, interrupted, uninterrupted kind of teaching time where he's talking plainly to the disciples and he's teaching them from the time that the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, till the moment that he's arrested, all this teaching takes place in there. And he's talking plainly, and he's talking clearly, and the disciples, as we're going to see this morning, are going to maybe finally get it, because they've been full of all of these questions. And so the farewell discourse kind of wraps up a little bit, and then next week we're going to begin this uh, chapter 17, which is this incredible prayer. It's beautiful that Jesus prays over the disciples, and over the believers, and over himself, and as he knows that his hour is drawing near. So literally, in terms of history, we are in the last few moments, uh, minutes, half hours, hours of the life of Christ before he is arrested and then ultimately crucified. Uh, we are certainly in the last moments of his ministry with the disciples. And something happens in our text today where it looks like the disciples, after three years of walking around with Jesus and watching him do the most incredible, miraculous, amazing things, casting out demons and feeding 5,000, walking on water and all these incredible things, they're going to actually say, we finally believe. After all of that, they're going to come to this place. And we're not going to really even understand clearly why, but we're going to see them kind of stand on this. We get it. And then Jesus is going to offer them a very sobering reality uh, which is really important for you and I to hear as well. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to John chapter 16. We're going to start in verse 25, and we're going to wrap up chapter 16 uh, today 
as we kind of wrap up the ends of that farewell discourse right until Jesus goes into his, um, his kind of lengthy and really powerful prayer um, that we will begin examining next week. So let's take a moment. Let's just pray and ask God to teach our hearts this morning. Lord, your word is living and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. You tell us that it penetrates even the dividing joints and marrow, soul and spirit, that it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. It is the breath of God. Lord, we do not take this lightly at all. Um, your word is not some guidebook for our life. It is your very love poured out. It is an expression of you. It is an encounter with you. And so, Lord, we take it seriously, and we ask you to teach our hearts, even the hard things. Now, we choose not to ignore them or skip over them. We want you to move in them and reveal truth to us. Take a moment in your own heart, just as you sit here, and ask the Lord to teach you. This morning, for the next few moments, as we open his word, just ask the Lord to teach your heart. You got anything going on in there that you just want to let go of, ask him to remove it, and ask him to teach your heart this morning. Take a moment and and pray for somebody around you. We do this every single week. Our goal is that we would be a community that is in the habit of praying for each other, that everything that unfolds on a Sunday morning is not about you, um, but that we want the people around us to encounter the risen God. And so pray that the person next to you would have an encounter with the Lord this morning. Just Even if you don't know their name, even if you're here for the first time and it seems kind of weird, just just try it. Just pray for them. Pray that God would move in them um, this morning. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Lord, we love you. We turn our time over to you this morning. We ask that you would teach our hearts, that you would correct, that you would rebuke, that you would encourage, God, that you would strengthen, that you would comfort and you would do it all through your word. So Lord, we turn this time over to you and we thank you for your son who gave us life so that we might know you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in John chapter 16. We're kick, picking up mid-breath where Brandon left us last week. And Brandon left off where Jesus is trying to break into the disciples for the umpteenth time that he's actually leaving. That he's leaving and where he's going, they cannot come. And they are actually going to be filled with grief. They're going to be filled with hurt. They're going to be filled with loss. But he talks about how essentially he is going to be the remedy for their grief and loss. That in order to get to life and joy, we have to go through this process of grief that comes after loss. And Brandon talked, kind of expounded on that in depth, and we're going to pick up on that thought, and Jesus is going to take it one step further, and he's actually going to show us this morning that even though this world is full of trouble, he is the overcomer of this world. So we're picking up in that thought in verse 25, where Jesus says this. He says, though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but I will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day you will ask in my name, Am I not saying that I will ask the Father? I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father Himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. 
now we can see that you know all things and you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. You believe at last, Jesus answered. But a time is coming and has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So nothing Jesus says in those first few verses should come as a surprise. If you are, have been with us at all over the past six weeks, eight weeks, none of those things are new. Jesus is essentially reiterating what he said multiple times in this farewell discourse, where he explained to them that he is going to where he came from, that he came from the Father, and that he is returning to the Father. And there's a time that is coming where he won't talk figuratively about the Lord. He's talking about the resurrection. We will talk plainly, and you will see. But he's basically saying, I am returning to the Father. And I don't need to ask the Father on, on my behalf because you will know him because you've loved me. Essentially, it's a, it's a recapitulation of John chapter 8 where he says, the Father loves you because you loved me. So he's saying, you're going to have this independent relationship with the Father because you have loved me. You're going to have access to God. And so he's saying all these things over and over again. Nothing new here, but he's saying, I am returning to the Father. <clears throat> now, something clicks in the disciples, and I don't have any idea what it is, it's not like Jesus says anything new or anything magical here, but they just almost seem to get it. And it's, it's not like maybe what he said right now, <clears throat> excuse me, but it's this kind of gathering of things that he's done over the past three chapters. And the disciples actually say to him, <clears throat> excuse me, now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. And we can see that you know all things. And you do not have to have anyone ask you questions. Therefore, we believe that you are from God. <clears throat> All of Jesus' ministry has been pointing to the fact that he has been telling them in John that he is from the Father and he's returning to the Father. But something shakes out here in the disciples, and we really don't have any idea what. They finally say, so for the past three chapters or the past two hours, you have been telling us things plainly. No parables, no metaphors, no gates or roads or, you know, pearls or all these kind of things, lost stuns, coins, just plainly telling us about the Father. And no one's even been asking you questions. Obviously, these things are coming to you because you are from the Father. And then Jesus sort of responds with this at last you finally believe. It really translates better as a question. It really translates better from the Greek as, oh, now you finally believe. It's, it's kind of this rhetorical question wrapped up in exasperation. It's not really like Jesus is like, oh, good, you finally believe. It's really like after three years of wandering around and teaching and speaking and doing all these miracles and all the things that you've seen, the wonders and the signs, now is the time that you finally believe. <laughs> and they've got this sort of incredible little proclamation of faith, and Jesus is going to give them a really sobering reality where he says, and now you finally believe, but let me tell you something. And this is really where I want to spend our time this morning, because this is what is really so magnificent and yet sobering in the face of their proclamation, right? So they say, we finally believe, because you are talking clearly, we put all these things together, we believe. And Jesus says, well, finally, right, at last, 
But let me tell you about a time that's coming and has come already when you will be scattered to your own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I'm not alone. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This section of text, (coughs) excuse me, it's crazy call, is really powerful because it says to us some things that I think that we all need to really understand and buy into when it comes to our own faith. So the disciples have this sort of newfound proclamation, this newfound faith by which they say, we finally believe you. (coughs) We get it. We get it. And Jesus says, that newfound proclamation of faith will fail. So in the midst of all that, he doesn't say, that's great, I'm so glad, we're finally going to pull it together. Now your faith is complete. He looks at them and he says, let me tell you about something. Your faith is going to fail. That new proclamation that you have, it will fail. Every one of you will be sent to your own homes and you will scatter. And of course, this is prophetic. We know this to be true. We know it to be true. Matthew tells us that when the Roman soldiers showed up with that angry mob led by Judas, in just a matter of moments, they all flee. Every single one of them. Luke tells us that Peter ran and he hid and followed at a distance. Every one of these disciples that has told Jesus they would never leave or flee. Peter had just literally said, I would rather die than abandon you. We just saw that a couple of chapters ago. They're all going to flee. Their faith and proclamation of their faith, their trust, is going to fail. And the reason this is so powerful, because it's really true for you and it's really true for me. Our faith will fail. Your faith and trust in Jesus will fall apart. If it hasn't already, there will be a time when it does. There will be a time where, like these disciples, you will run for the hills. You will lurk in the shadows. When God will call you, you will find yourself at full sprint the other way. Well, you will find yourself in the middle of a lake full of doubts and worries and questions, all asking, God, is any of this even real? Are you real? But as believers, we're petrified of doubts. We're petrified of them. We're petrified of questions. We think that somehow we have to throw up this armor of faith that says, my faith is perfect, and if somehow somebody, God, or even worse, people see through that facade, right? then the whole thing is going to come crashing down. And so we cover up all of our questions with sort of a false bravado of faith that says, no, I I trust Jesus. All the while we lurk in the shadows of our heart, wondering if any of this is even real. And the truth is, the truth is, is that God knows that. Jesus knows that about the disciples. He looks at him and he says, you have walked with me for three years. You just proclaim that you believe. And in a matter of moments, I mean, we're not talking three years down the road. We're talking about a half hour. They are going to all run for the hills because their faith will fail. And you know why their faith fails? Because they are sinful and they are selfish and they are broken. And you want to know why your faith fails and my faith fails? Because I am sinful and I am selfish and I am broken. It's in our very nature. At the end of the day, I'll always return to my sinful nature, and my faith is a shell, and it will fail. And the reason this is really important is because the quicker we come to grips with it, the more magnificent the words that follow will be. Jesus' words that follow are incredible, but we have to come to grips that our faith will fail. And the reason I want you to understand that is because 
You don't have to keep pretending with God. He can handle our biggest and deepest questions. All through Scripture, we see people going to God with huge, massive questions. We've had them, right? Why does my my mom have cancer? Or why did I have to lose this person? Or God, why didn't you intervene here when I called on you and needed you and you seemed to be absent? God can handle all of our questions. He's not afraid of them, and he's not threatened by them. The truth is, is the quicker we come to grips with the fact that we have a faith that cannot be sustained by our human standards. And it has to be anchored by the God who gives it life. Then the quicker we are to release the guilt and the shame that come with feeling a failure of our faith. We beat ourselves up. Everybody else around me seems to trust Jesus, but I'm really struggling. And we beat ourselves up and up over and over again. And we live with guilt and shame over a faith that's broken that God already knows will be broken. It doesn't mean we give in to it, we just live with it, but it does mean that we call out to God and we say, God, I am wrestling. I am struggling. Every part of me wants to run. I mean, I think about all the times in my own life that God has called me to something and I have run the other way or I have hid in the shadows all the while publicly proclaiming my faith in Jesus yet hiding in the darkness and fear in my heart because my faith fails. The disciples, 30 minutes after their great proclamation, hour after their great proclamation, they all run. I mean, think about that. They've almost been stoned to death. They stood by Jesus in the wake of mobs and Pharisees. And here comes a crowd of soldiers and men and people with torches to arrest, to arrest Jesus. And they just run. After all them proclaiming that they believe, and after Peter himself saying, I will die with you. How many times have you told Jesus, I'm not going to think that anymore. I'm not going to do that anymore. Only 30 minutes later to find yourself in the middle of that same thought, or action, or behavior. The truth is our faith fails. But here's the incredible news, is that Jesus actually says it's okay. Now listen to what he says to the disciples, and this is, is magnificent. He says this, he says, look, you will all scatter. You'll go to your own home. You will leave me all alone. And that's true. It's prophetic. Jesus will be standing there alone with a mob of people that want to kill him, and not one of his 11, because Judas has already left, will be standing there with him. He says, but that's okay. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. What Jesus is saying is that, look, your faith will fail, but it's okay because I don't need you. Now hear me say that again, because it sounds really harsh. And from a human standpoint, it is. But from a theological standpoint, it is incredibly beautiful. So Jesus says, look, your faith is going to fail. You are going to run for the hills. You are going to leave me alone, but it's okay because I am not alone. I don't need you. What that means is that Jesus didn't need the disciples to be Jesus. He didn't need the disciples' faith to be God. When they left him alone, he actually wasn't alone. Jesus is perfectly complete in the Trinity. He is needing nothing. He didn't need the disciples' perfect faith to wrap up his identity, to make him feel better about who he was and not so lonely. Jesus is perfect and he's holy and he's complete in the Father. And so when your faith fails, when the disciples' faith fails, Jesus isn't threatened and he isn't less God. He's not wondering if your faith will finally truly believe in him so his self-esteem will be lifted up. Because that's how humans work, right? 
We need the belief in other people so that our self-esteem gets lifted up. I need my wife or I need people to believe in me and tell me that I'm doing a really great job so that my self-esteem goes up so I can be the best me who I am because I need the support of people. It's humanity. Jesus is complete. He doesn't need your perfect faith. He is no less God when you believe in him than when you don't. He is no less God than when your faith is at an all-time high or when you're hiding under a rock, petrified, wondering if he's even real. He is no less God. He is absolutely, totally complete, and he does not need you. I was actually at a funeral years ago, and the pastor was talking about this sort of death situation, and he said, you know, it's really sad and tragic, but the silver lining is, and this is literally what he said, the silver lining is, God was lonely, and so he called so-and-so, this person, home because he needed the company of another angel. And I want to stand up and go, what a load of crap! God doesn't need anything, and he certainly isn't playing with human grief to sustain his own low self-esteem and self-image. Why would we believe that garbage? God is perfect and he is holy and he does not need you. But he loves you and he came for you. That's the incredible nature of grace, is that your faith will falter and fail. That you will wonder if God is real. Even in the moments of the most all-time incredible high in your life, 30 minutes later you'll be wondering and you'll be full of fear. And Jesus knows that he proclaims it over the disciples, but he's not threatened by it. The disciples running did not make Jesus less Jesus. Your lack of faith does not make God less of a God. He is all-powerful whether you want to believe it or not. He is all-everything whether you want to put your full trust and perfect faith in it or not. And the reason that is so magnificent is because I don't have to hammer myself with shame. I don't have to beat myself up with guilt. I am not bringing God down right? He is not any less God because my faith is weak. Now, that doesn't give me a free ride to just go, hey, Lord, I'm just going to camp out over here and live in my self-doubt and in my doubt. And you know, but what it does, it gives me freedom to cry out to God and be honest to the God that already knows that my heart is feeling anyway and say, God, I am struggling and I need you to anchor my faith because I feel like a ship that's adrift or I'm afraid or I'm lonely or I'm lost, but I need you to give me reassurance and to anchor my faith into something real. Because right now I am in a full sprint from you. I'm scattering to my own home, and I know that I am leaving you. But you never leave me. Because your lack of faith does not make God less of God. And it's incredible. It's incredible. Because I need to know that God is bigger than my failures. I need to know that God doesn't waver when my question comes rolling in and when my fear suspends my heart. I need to know that he is no less God then in those moments than when I'm feeling my best and I'm singing and praising at the top of my lungs and I feel God filling me up, that he is no less God than when I'm petrified and afraid and wondering if maybe all of this is just a sham. That doesn't take away from God being God. And what Jesus tells the disciples is, you will all leave. Even in your incredible, profound, new faith, you will all leave. But it's okay. I don't need you. I'm complete in the Father. And that's freeing to me. 
because it gives me the ability to look to God and say, God, I need you to anchor my faith. You don't need me. You don't need my faith to be God. And he says, look, I'm going to tell you these things for a couple of reasons. He says, I'm telling you these things, right, that your faith will fail and that that's okay. I'm telling you these things for a couple of reasons. And he's very specific, right? Verse 33, he says, I've told you these things so that in me you will have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So he says, I've told you these things for a couple of reasons. First thing I want you to see is this. I've told you these things because in this world you will have trouble. Now, life is hard. Understatement of the decade, right? I mean, literally, life is hard. There's not one of us sitting out here today that would question that. Now, it doesn't mean that life doesn't have wonderful and glorious and amazing moments. It doesn't mean that life in itself is not incredible. What it does mean is that life is hard, and as Brandon always says, nobody gets out of it unscathed. Death and loss and sin and evil are real. Pain and hurt are very real. Humanity is broken and it will fail you. People will run out on you. Things will fall apart. Things will break. Things won't make sense. Life is really hard. Families get broken. Trust gets shattered. Life is hard. It's really, really hard. And guess what? Following Jesus actually just elevates it. It doesn't make it easier. It doesn't make life easier. Well, we'll see is it actually makes life more joyful, but it doesn't make it more easy. Ask any of the disciples, ask Paul. Paul said yes to Jesus, and his life went awful. Shipwrecks, snake bites, all kinds of things, finally rotting in prison. All of the disciples would lose their life because of Jesus. Every single one of them. Life is really hard. Relationships are hard. Marriage is hard. Children are hard. School is hard. Work is hard. Coworkers are hard. Money doesn't come easy. Things are hard. Even in our Western world where everything is even at our fingertips, right? Still hard. Jesus prophetically again says, this world will have trouble. And not just because of that, but because sin and evil are real. And Jesus will even tell us that the prince of this world the devil prowls around like a roaring lion waiting to devour. The reality is, is that the prince of this world wants to do anything he can to destroy you, to steal your faith, to rob you blind, to render you useless, to squash every ounce of hope and joy that you have as a follower of Christ. Coupling that with how difficult life is in general, and Jesus' statement seems like a throwaway. In this world, you will have trouble. He doesn't say you might. He doesn't say you could. He says you will. In this world, you will have trouble. So if you haven't experienced it yet, you will. And you know what? That's okay. Because he says this, I've told you these things because in this world you have trouble, but I want you to have peace in me. So Jesus says this world is going to give you trouble. Your faith will fail. It's okay. It doesn't change who I am. I'm complete in the Father. You'll have trouble in this world, but I'm telling you these things because I want you to find peace in me. Now, of course, Jesus says that peace 
is not found somewhere else. It's found in Jesus. It's not found because we believe or we trust or we have perfect faith. He says, I want you to find peace in me. We've talked about this before, but you know what that peace in Christ really means? It's the spiritual and mental rest that comes from surrendering to Jesus as your highest joy and trusting that he is and always will be enough for you. So I've talked about this before at length, but my definition of peace of Christ, everything I see in Scripture boils down to this. Peace of Christ, right, is the mental and spiritual rest that comes from surrendering to Jesus as your highest joy and trusting and believing that he is now and always will be enough for you. Most of us worry and most of us stress and most of us are restless because we haven't surrendered to one of those two things. One, Jesus is my highest joy. We've tried to find our joy in everything else. Other people, other things, work, school, whatever. Success, money, name it, whatever it is. Those are my highest joys. My children, my spouse, being whatever kind of person is I want to be. Great Christian, successful businesswoman, or whatever it is. My highest joy is that. Or my highest joy is my family or my children. Anything other than Christ that is our highest joy will leave us spiritually and mentally restless. Finding peace in Christ means that, Jesus, you are my highest joy. It means that nothing in my life will come close to the joy that I have in you. And until we come to that reality, until you surrender that and let go of all those things, you can, I can promise you that you will be living in mental and spiritual unrest. You'll be tired, you'll be spiritually tired, you'll be wandering, and you'll be wondering why there's passionless parts of your spiritual life, why it feels like life is going from one church motion to the other. We've got to surrender to Jesus as our highest joy. What is the highest joy in your life? If we say anything other than Christ, you'll never find true spiritual rest, not peace in Christ. Second part that we always struggle with, too, is that, okay, fine, I I believe that Jesus is my highest joy. But what that really means is that I surrender my trust and belief that he is right now and always will be enough for me. This is the greatest struggle in my life. Literally the greatest struggle in my Christian life is believing that Jesus is enough for me right now and always will be. Because my life is a series of chasing other things. Thinking that if I can just master this thing or get this thing under control, then I will truly, finally find rest. If I can just conquer this piece of debt or just do this thing or, or just get to this place or just maybe get this spiritual thing done or pray more or pray less or read more or read less or whatever it is, I'm chasing one thing after another, hoping that provides me spiritual rest and it is always totally empty because, because, I very seldom rest in the idea that Jesus is just enough. That if everything else gets stripped from my life, as awful and as tragic and as heartbreaking as that would be, that Jesus is enough for me. To take away all the things and all the stuff and all my identity and all of those things, and it's just me and Jesus. And then right now in this moment, he sustains me. And no matter what happens in the future, he will sustain me. The peace in Christ that Jesus is talking about, right? 
find peace in me comes from those things. That Jesus, you're my highest joy. There's nothing on this planet that can bring me greater joy than knowing you. And that I trust that you are enough for me, whether I have or have not, whether you give or don't give, whether my life looks like the person on the corner's life or on the street's life or down my neighborhood life, it doesn't matter because you are enough for me. Whether I have a second house, a one house, a car, not a car, a wife, a spouse, no spouse, no kids, kids, none of it really, right, sustains me because you are what fills me. Those things are amazing and they're wonderful, but I'm okay in you. There is something liberating and freeing about that. The peace of Christ, right? So Jesus says, I've told you these things, that your faith will fail and that's okay, right? Because I'm still God. I'm still God. I've told you these things, but this world is full of trouble and you are not gonna find peace unless you find it in me. And then Jesus says this incredible, amazing, and kind of wrap it all up with this one powerful line where he says, look, but take heart. And he's talking to a group of men who he just told would all fail. Right? He just told them they would all fail and they would run. Take heart, which really just means be strengthened, be comforted, be encouraged. So he says, so be strengthened, be comforted, be encouraged. I have overcome the world. Now, if there's ever been a more pregnant statement in Scripture, I don't really know what it would be. Because Jesus, of course, has yet to go to the cross. and He's yet to be raised from the dead, but we are on the brink of all of those incredible things. And he looks at this group of men who we just told would all fail. And he says, but listen, be encouraged. Take heart. I've overcome all of it. What that says to me is, look, what I'm walking through, what I'm dealing with, what I'm struggling with, what I'm afraid of, Jesus has overcome. He literally has overcome my biggest failure and he's overcome my biggest fear. He's overcome all the trouble this world will ever throw at you. Jesus is bigger. And I find that incredibly comforting. So I don't know what you're sitting in today. I don't know what stack of emotions you've got, what fears, what anxieties, what failures, all those things. I just want you to hear these words of Christ. He's bigger than every single bit of it. And he's not threatened by your lack of faith. He wants you to know that you can have peace in him, that all of that can subside. And you can find him as your joy and as your mental and spiritual rest because he is bigger. And coming to the disciples who just heard that they were all going to run away, in a matter of breaths, they're going to find that to be true. And that Jesus, who they'd sown their life to for three years, is going to literally be ripped from their hands. And Jesus says, take heart. I win. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the moments in your word. We thank you that your word is, well, it's unmoving. It's just powerful and true. Lord, I confess that my faith is really weak. It's like the waves on an ocean, they have these great crests where I believe all things that I trust you and these deep valleys where I wonder if sometimes you're even out there.
And I hate that. I hate it. I hate it that I'm afraid. I hate it that I have weakness. I hate it that I'm full of wonder sometimes. But I love, God, that you're not threatened by it. I love that you can take all of my questions and you can take all of my fears and you can take all of those things and you can anchor them to truth. And that in my moments of valley and fear, God, you sow those things to who you are. I thank you that you recognize that in this world, each one of us is going to have trouble. We're just going to. There's going to be pain. There's going to be loss. There's going to be hurt. We're going to be threatened. We're going to lose jobs. We're going to have families that break. All those things are very real. But in the middle of all that, you've given us peace in you. That if we surrender to you as our highest joy and trust that you are and always will be enough, that we find this incredible peace in Christ that basically says when the world throws every ounce of trouble at me, as hard as it will be to deal with, I have Jesus, and Jesus has overcome all of it. You are enough for me, Lord. God, I pray that that would be the cry of our heart as we close our time in worship, that you are enough. You are not threatened by our questions and our wanderings. You are enough. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's stand together and close our time and